0: Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious, uh, just like that song says, um, you're merciful. And uh, you are a forgiving God, a loving God, a kind God. And in the, the depths of what we're about to dive into in 2 Timothy today, we need to, to feel uh, that kindness and that grace. We need it for our minds and our hearts to be open to what you're going to tell us. We need it for our hearts to be receptive, to embrace with joy the, the realities and the glories that are in this text, and we need it most of all, Father God, to know that we are your children, that our hearts cry out to you and say, Abba, Father, and you respond, that's my child, that's my son, that's my daughter, I love you. Help us know that in the scriptures today, Father. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, Then the weeds appeared also, and the servants and the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, No, no, lest in, in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, "'Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, "'but gather the wheat into my barn.'" Jesus later on left the crowds and went into a house, and his disciples came to him saying, "'Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field.'" He answered, "'The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. "'The field is the world, "'and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom.'" The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as, Jesus says, the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. Jesus says that this parable here in Matthew 13 is a parable that is comparable to the kingdom of heaven. He's describing the kingdom of heaven here. It's a striking story of a man in the field sowing seed. And I really felt as we begin uh, to explore 2 Timothy, the passage we're about to look into today, it would be apt for us to open with this parable and Jesus' explanation of it as sort of like a backdrop <clears throat> for the text that we're going to look at. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. Hopefully, Why we began with that parable will become clear. If it doesn't, then I failed. (laughs) If you've been with us the the past few weeks, you know that we are in a series uh, that is really plumbing the depths of 2 Timothy, and uh, this second epistle to young Timothy that the Apostle Paul was writing as he's approaching his own execution. So this epistle is written with the kind of urgency and sincerity and passion that you would expect Uh, Timothy is Paul's beloved child, his spiritual protege in ministry. And these are words that Paul's giving to him as he prepares to die. The theme of this entire letter has been unwaveringly for Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ, but rather to acknowledge and anticipate coming towards him and embrace and share in the suffering that comes along with the gospel. This is the dominant and really recurring theme of this text. And uh, over the past two weeks, we saw that, that this isn't just a reality, not being ashamed of the gospel, that we experience when we're out evangelizing to people who've never walked into a church. This is a reality that we experience in the church when we engage false teachers and false doctrine. This is what we saw last week, actually the last two weeks. Last week, we saw that we are called to correct our opponent's with gentleness and with kindness. And the hope there from what we saw last week is that they might be granted repentance graciously by God and that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. But what Paul's going to do next at the beginning of chapter 3 is he's going to show us what happens when that doesn't occur. He's going to invite us into the sad and tragic reality that many will refuse to be corrected And it's going to lead to something called times of difficulty. We'll let him explain it in his own words. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul says to Timothy, avoid such people. This is a very heavy list and a long list. been through it several times this week and I'm like, wondering at what point Paul decided to proceed to continue with this list. So many things here that are tragic. But these behaviors and sins aren't unfamiliar to us. They shouldn't be surprising to us. And to be perfectly honest, they wouldn't have been surprising to Timothy, especially that he attaches this reality that they will occur in the last days. Both Timothy and us, according to the scriptures, live in the last days. We know Timothy does. Because Paul tells them to avoid such people. It's really hard to do when they're not around you. So he is in the last days. We are in the last days since we are after the ascension of Christ Jesus. So this reality that Paul's describing isn't a far distant future. This is our present world. And Paul tells Timothy to avoid such people. Now, to be clear, and we saw this last week, he obviously does not mean don't ever correct them or don't ever evangelize to them. Or don't ever have any interactions with them. We know that because of what he told us last week. Correct your opponents with gentleness. But what he does mean here when he says avoid such people is don't associate with or give approval to what they're doing. Avoid them. Avoid their sin. Avoid their sinful activity. Don't allow there to be any possibility for someone to assume that you are, you are with them in their sinning. You are associated with the sins that they're committing. And that uh, last statement from Paul, avoid such people, should not be surprising, given the list that he's provided here. This list begins with a sobering statement to Timothy that with the last days will come times of difficulty. Difficult times, challenges, struggles, hardships. And the reason they're times of difficulty is because of this list. We're not going to have time to unpack every single element in this list, nor do I think we need to. We know some of these very well. We know them in the world around us. We know them in our own hearts when they pop up. They're not unfamiliar to us. But what I want to do here to really give us a good understanding and framework for all of these things is to call to our attention the beginning and the end of the list. Look at what Paul does here. He begins with, for people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. And then he ends with, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's interesting. Lovers on both sides. He's not, this is not a coincidence. This is not an accident that he presses all these experiences and realities and behaviors in between these two, two phrases. Paul is engaging something that we've actually looked at many times before. And it is this. Sin, in whatever form it is, whatever form it might come isn't in its essence a physical or mechanical action that we do. That's not the essence of sin, although those are sins that we do. Sin is something that is far deeper. Paul shows us here that it is misplaced love, ultimately. People do not love God as they ought to, and that is what leads to these sinful actions. They're caught up with other affections, other things that they desire and love. He mentions a few of them here. Self, money, pleasure, these are all earthly treasures. And the ultimate problem here is that the, uh, the affections and desires of these people that he's referencing do not find their, their home in God being the supremely beautiful and worthy treasure that he is to give their lives to. Rather, other things have that place in their heart. They are lovers of self, which is why people are proud or conceited. Those were on the list. They are lovers of money, which explains why they're ungrateful and unappeasable. They're reckless and without self-control, according to this list, which is what happens when people are driven by a desire to find pleasure in the world without any reference to God, the creator of this world, and every good pleasure that is in it. And these are all at the very root of it, if you were to boil it all down, is they're all result of idolatry, misplaced love and worship and adoration, which is to say that the true God isn't on the throne of their hearts, but something has replaced him on that throne. Underneath every sin that you can conceive of, under- underneath every wicked act, is this basic preference or desire for something over God. There is no sin that falls outside this parameter that you can conceive of. Something causes us when we sin to put God on the side and desire to serve or worship something else, whether it's ego, people's opinion of us, whatever it might be, and that's where sin originates from. Whether it's visibly apparent or invisible and subconscious, that's the reality. This list is terrifying. Not necessarily terrifying because of how big it is, even though that is kind of scary. Um, this list is terrifying because of what Paul says after the list. Look at this, verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That's scary because he isn't talking about the world, which doesn't care if they're godly or not. He's talking about people who, have reject, who haven't rejected godliness but instead are are using godliness as a cloak to cover up their own sinfulness. They live and act as though they're godly, but they deny the power of God. So it's it's, it's this kind of superficial godliness that isn't wrought by the power of God that must bring it about if if it's real and legitimate. This is some kind of moral or religious activity apart from God designed to make a show and to hide ultimately what's going on underneath. And the scary part of this uh, is that Paul isn't talking about some kind of group or, or, or even the world where, where there's this blatant godless, godlessness and rejection of God. He's referring to people who consider themselves godly, who consider themselves righteous. But in reality, underneath the godliness, the veneer, is sinfulness, which explains where he's going from the last two weeks with these false teachers that have cropped up in the church at Ephesus, men who evidently were in the church at one point in time. They may have even been teachers, from what we can see here, they apparently can teach, and they, were, they began to teach false things and poison existing believers. We saw in 1 Timothy 1 that Paul released them from the church and said, you're no longer welcome in this church anymore because you've been doing these things. These men were teaching that the resurrection had already happened and therefore there was no future resurrection. Um, Not only is that untrue, but the resurrection is the central hope of the Christian faith. You remove the resurrection, read 1 Corinthians 15, you remove the gospel. And this teaching was causing people to abandon the hope of this resurrection in the future and pursue pleasures in this world because the present is all that you have. We saw from 1 Timothy 6 that these men were using godliness as a means for personal gain. Uh, They saw doing godly things as a pathway to get what they really wanted, um, whatever they desired, and what they desired at the end wasn't God. It was something other than God, and Paul, in contradistinction to that, would say, listen, I know you're saying godliness is for the sake of gain or you're acting and living that way, but here's the deal. Godliness with contentment in this world is great gain because for the Christian, God is their treasure. They value him. Even if they fluctuate in those affections, ultimately, at the end of the day, their heart has been transformed around the reality of God and he is their treasure above everything else. These false teachers that have crept into the Ephesian church Reflect what Jesus said earlier about the kingdom in Matthew 13. Jesus said, A man who we later discover is the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, that had planted good seed in his field, comes back out, his servants are wondering what's going on. There are weeds growing in this field. You planted good seed. What's going on, Master? Then the Son of Man's response was very simple An enemy has done this. An enemy. And These are the false teachers in Ephesus. These are the ones who follow the false teachers. They are people who play church and do not belong to Christ. And they believe these false doctrines that are corrupting the believers in the church. Um, they do not believe in him. They do not see his infinite worth. They are the weeds of Matthew 13. And Jesus says, an enemy has done this. They're called in that text, sons of the evil one, sons of the devil, which is Similar to what Paul said last week, Paul said that those who are captive to the devil are doing his will, they're under his sway. And so this is the the false teaching that has been basically percolating in Timothy's church. And we're gonna see it further explained here. This is where it really gets dark and he actually uh, attaches explicit language around what they're doing. Look at verse six. Paul says, for among them, for among the false teachers are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. It's intense language to describe the method, really, of these false teachers. So these men are men who creep into households and they capture weak women. Now, clearly, His statement here about weak women isn't a statement about all women. He's referring to a specific group being targeted by these false teachers. We know that there were many women who served with the Apostle Paul, who did ministry with them, spreading the gospel, and he thought very highly of them. But these particular women in Ephesus were giving false teachers quarter in their home. They were giving them room to teach false things. And he says that these women were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, So a picture emerges in this text of what was going on. These men, these evil men, are are targeting and infiltrating the lives of these women who have been entangled in sin in some way or shape or form. And they're taking advantage of these women in their weakened state, teaching them what is false and bringing these women under their sway. Now, we do not know the details of how this went down. Um, there are theologians that attach certain, uh, certain uh, spiritual views that were going on in that day to what was going on here. The Bible doesn't really tell us how, what was going down and, and doesn't give us any more uh, explicit language other than what we read here. But we do know, and what is relevant here, is that these women were captive. They were captive. Paul says that they were always learning and yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, which means they were trapped in this self-perpetuating cycle of unrepentance and unbelief, and they didn't have any way out. And these men who teach that the resurrection already already happened, uh, which has led to this rejection of real holiness in this embracing of a veneer of godliness that is a cloak for greed and lust and pride, these women are these men are, 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 are attacking and, and, and capturing these women with the false teaching. You can imagine a scenario where perhaps Timothy was having taught these women for some time, and they were part of the church in Ephesus. They sat under his teaching. He loved them. He cared for them. Maybe he saw something in them that looked like progress. And this is real. I, I feel this even in just pastoral ministry. Maybe he sees something in them that looks like trust in Christ, letting go of a broken past, and then this happens. These guys step in and mess it up. We don't know if that was the case or not. We don't know all the details. But the next two verses seem to indicate that there was some kind of conflict that happened. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Just as John S. and John Bress opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, And disqualified regarding the faith. But he says, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So these two men, Jonas and Johnbreast, were two men from the Old Testament. They're in Exodus 7, even though their names are not recorded there. They are Pharaoh's magicians. They're the Egyptian magicians who, if you recall, they responded to, I mean, everyone's seen Prince of Egypt, hopefully, or read Exodus, which is better, but um, <laughs> either will work. Um, you've seen the scene where, where, where the miracle, where Aaron throws down his staff, and his staff becomes a snake, and then the magicians step out, and they throw down their staffs, and they become snakes. That's Jonas and Jambras. Now, they're not mentioned in Exodus by their name. They're recorded in Jewish historical records. This is the only place that they're surfaced in the canon of scripture. But what's interesting about that is that Timothy would have known immediately, being a boy who was taught in the scriptures, who these two were and what it meant. They opposed Moses as he is doing what God commanded him so that the people would be free, directly opposing the power of God in their own way. And Paul says, listen, the false teachers, Timothy, that you're dealing with right now are no different than Jonas and John Russ. They oppose truth just like those men did thousands of years ago. They are corrupted and twisted in their thinking and completely disqualified with regard to the face. Therefore, you need to know, because they're corrupted, because they're disqualified, they're not going to get very far. These men will not get very far, he says. And he says, just like Jonas and Jambres were there and their snakes got eaten by Aaron's snake, it will be ple- it, their folly will be plain to all at the end of the day. Which is, again, one of the ways that Paul has been, and we've seen this repeatedly throughout this letter, he has been anchoring Timothy in the sovereignty of God. He says, there's going to be times of difficulty, Timothy. You need to know that. But these men and their teaching will not last. God will have the final say, just like he did with Moses. And so this is an encouragement to Timothy. And it again reminds us of the parable Jesus gave us in Matthew 13. The Son of Man says, let the the weeds grow alongside the grain. Let it grow alongside the grain. He's not concerned. He's like, don't be concerned about the weeds being present. I'll sort that out sooner or later. When the harvest comes, the reapers will pluck every weed and throw those weeds into the furnace. And so Paul's telling Timothy, listen, don't allow this to move you to doubt God. He has this under control. He will take care of them in due time. But Paul, at this point in the letter, isn't just going to give Timothy this solemn warning about the, the, the times that are coming, the times of difficulty that are coming. In contrast, he wants to present, in, in distinction from the, the false teaching, he wants to present the life of someone that Timothy has seen and witnessed who has taught him well and who has lived well, and he presents his own life. Look at this, verse 10. He says, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, he says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions, he says, I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The ending here is sober. Let's start with that, I guess. Evil people and imposters, he refers. These these people, the imposters would be the false teachers, people who, who we would presume or assume were Christians, but they're not. They're false teachers. They will go from bad, he says, to worst. They will be deceiving and being deceived. They don't turn and repent. They don't trust Jesus. They don't remove themselves from this trajectory that they're on and cling to Christ and what he said. This is their destiny. Deceiving and being deceived all the way to the furnace. And Paul wants Timothy to know that there are going to be weeds growing alongside the grain. He should not be shaken by this. God is in control. And instead of being concerned or worried about the future, Paul is reminding Timothy, listen, you've seen my life, Timothy. You've followed my teaching. You've followed my conduct for years Timothy's seen how Paul has lived his life. It's different than these false teachers. All these traits that he mentions at the beginning are diametrically opposed to the traits of the earlier list we saw. They're the exact opposite. His patience, his love, his steadfastness. It's important to note that Paul isn't ingratiating himself to Timothy. He's not trying to impress Timothy. Timothy knows this. He is merely reminding him of what Timothy has already witnessed. This is Paul's life. Timothy saw this when Paul came to Lystra, which is Timothy's hometown, and he's seen it firsthand on his missionary journeys. This is who Paul is. Paul is trying to draw Timothy's eyes away from the false teachers and the chaos that they're creating and fix his eyes on those who have emulated Christ and who have instructed him well and who have lived a life that is worthy of the gospel. But what's interesting about what Paul does here is that he doesn't just stop with virtues. He has these virtues, these things that he's done in his life, like he's, he's believed in God, he's trusted in God, he's loved people well, he's been steadfast. He doesn't stop with those things that Timothy should emulate. He continues the list. Look at this, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. He lists sufferings and persecutions alongside the virtues. Now, why? Why do that? Well, one clear reason is he's providing a stark contrast to the false teachers who have lured women into their sway through this promise of pleasure, Paul isn't promising any any pleasure, physical pleasure, like these false uh, teachers are. He hasn't experienced that, as you can see from his list. He would contend that the Christian life isn't to be in pursuit of earthly pleasure. In fact, he says here, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's That's a pretty universal statement, And it sounds an awful lot of what he's been saying this entire letter. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. Don't run away from this, Timothy. We are called to embrace the suffering that comes along with the gospel. It's part and parcel with a godly life. And in him mentioning these cities here, he's showing us that this is the reality. These are places where Paul was severely persecuted in. The last one, Lystra, was where he was stoned until he fell down dead. It was Timothy's home city. Timothy may have even witnessed this happen. Paul being bludgeoned to a pulp by rocks, and then they pulled him out of the city because they thought he was dead, and they leave him there to rot, and then he stands up, goes back into the city, and finishes what he started. Timothy knew what Paul was saying probably better than almost anyone. But what was even more amazing here is that Paul, after he left Lystra, came back through all three of these same cities, people who witnessed persecution, him being afflicted, and he tells the new disciples in those cities, in Acts, it is only through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. This is why I got beat up when I came to your city to preach the gospel. Many tribulations between us and the kingdom of God. Now, let me make this clear. The reason this feels so alien to us, like Paul's situation in Lystra, the reason it feels so alien to us in the 21st century in America isn't because we're normal and they're a historical aberration. That isn't the case. No, our country and the 21st century Western culture culture is not normal over the span of history. The the Disneyland that we live in (laughs) of America is an anomaly compared to much of what has happened over the the running ages. And by mentioning these cities to Timothy, Paul is saying, listen, the kingdom of God, the pathway between you and the kingdom of God is only with tears. What that looks like is going to change age to age. But as Romans 8 tells us, we are children and heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him. And this is precisely what Paul's getting at in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice the language he uses in that sentence. Look at what he says here. He says those who desire, ethelo in the Greek, which means to want, to, 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 to will, to intend. Paul could have said, those who live a godly life will be persecuted, which is a true statement. But he doesn't say that. He says desire, those who desire a godly life, which means that in his thinking, persecution and suffering really is not just this facet unrelated to a life of the Christian that kind of orbits the Christian's life and then occasionally may collide with it some way or some time. He doesn't see it like that. He sees persecution and really all suffering, when you look at Paul's theology throughout the entire New Testament, all suffering under the hand of, the, of our sovereign God, he sees it as the very means by which we are made godly. What makes us godly, what makes us righteous, isn't, aren't these little mechanical actions that we do that check off certain things off the list? What makes us righteous and godly in this verse at the very least, is the stripping away of false desires, the same desires we mentioned earlier from that list, which have dethroned God in our hearts. And the primary way that those are stripped away, not the only, but the primary way that those are stripped away in our lives isn't through seasons of ease. It isn't through seasons of comfort. It isn't through seasons of recreation. Even though those are good things and blessings from God, the primary way that those are stripped from our lives is through suffering and hardship and difficulty. You know this if you've ever been through anything hard. As a Christian, you, you, you draw close to him in those moments, and that's what Paul's saying here. If you desire to live a godly life, if you really want to look like Christ, it's not going to happen through ease. It won't going to ha- it's not going to happen if you think Christianity is, I'm just going to coast my way into heaven. Now, I want to be clear, this is not an invitation to look for suffering or to look for trouble. It's not some kind of masochistic worldview. It's simply the, 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 a realistic understanding of God's purpose in suffering in the life of every Christian. James 1 says this, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet vi- trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness.'" And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5 says it like this, we rejoice in our sufferings, which should surprise us because that's not how I respond to my suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. 1 Peter 1 says that although we rejoice in our salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, we have been grieved by various trials. Well, necessary for me to be grieved. Necessary for what? Peter tells us, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are sanctified by suffering. That's what purifies us. That's what those texts say. Now God could purify us any way that he chooses to, but the way that those texts focus on our purification, our sanctification is through suffering. As 1 Peter 2 says, if if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then he says what we looked at earlier in this series, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. Peter's saying, we are sanctified by suffering. That's what Paul is showing Timothy here. He's strengthening him. He's preparing him for what's going to happen. We are made more like Christ as we navigate this broken, fallen world of ours with a sincere desire to be godly, to be like Christ. Like a a searing crucible that melts the dross out of silver until the silversmith can see his reflection on the surface. A sovereign, loving hand of God graciously removes our impurities so that he can see his reflection in our souls. And you can see here why this teaching, that, that is, that is, this false teaching that, that is sort of uh, in, in infiltrating and intruding in the, Ephesus, uh, the church of Ephesus is so evil, it undercuts the zeal of God's people to do the very thing that we're called to do, to suffer well like Christ did. No one is going to want to share the gospel if this is all that there is. If there's no resurrection, Paul would say, it's foolish to share the gospel. Why would you even do that? When this world's hostility to the gospel results in ridicule, results in harm, results in in death uh, for, for certain people across the world. And this false teaching basically is eviscerating the passion and the zeal that these Christians should have to embrace suffering in this life by eliminating the hope of the resurrection. The very promise that, like we saw earlier in 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will reign with him. Paul's main point here, though, isn't the suffering that he endured. Look at what he says here in verse 11. His focus is on the rescuing that happened at the hand of the Lord. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra which persecutions I endured. Yet, he says, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Now, what does he mean there? That he's still alive? Maybe, probably not. It certainly does not mean that he didn't suffer. In Lystra, they threw rocks at him until his body stopped moving, and then they dragged him out of the city. So this wasn't being rescued from physical suffering, and it probably isn't that he is still alive because if you recall earlier in this book, he told Timothy, this is from chapter one, he said, Timothy, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But you need to know I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he, Christ Jesus, is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So his preoccupation isn't with the suffering, it's with what has been entrusted to him. And so what was entrusted to Paul? His ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel of grace. As each one of us have been entrusted with bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus in our own lives. Uh, Certainly not in the same way or capacity that Paul was, but in some way we are all called to bear witness to the gospel to those that God has graciously brought into our sphere of influence and placed around us. We do that through word, we do that through deed, but we are called to bear witness. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says the Lord rescued him. He's not referring primarily to physical rescue because that didn't happen. It's that these persecutions did not dislodge him from the grace of God and cause him to not speak the gospel to people. Paul's ministry and teaching was executed faithfully even when they were threatening to kill him. And it was in spite of all these persecutions that that happened. And he says, this ultimately happened. I want you to know, Timothy, it didn't happen because I'm strong. It happened because Christ strengthened me. He held me up in all of it. And the clearest evidence that this is what Paul means is actually at the end of 2 Timothy. Turn to the fourth chapter real quick. Look at verses 16 16 through 18. He's recounting his trial that has already happened, and his impending execution that is going to happen. Chapter 4, verse 16. At my first defense, he says, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So he says, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Same word as chapter 3. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory, Paul says, forever and ever. Amen. Now, what does he mean by the Lord will rescue him? That he's going to live? Not at all, because he describes the Lord's rescue of him as being brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. The rescue here is his own execution. The word safely here doesn't mean without bruises or wounds or injuries. It means faithfully. I will be brought into my, the, the presence of my king, having preached the gospel faithfully. Paul's death isn't the thing that he's most worried about. He's not preoccupied with his death. Um, he wants the gospel to be preached, and he doesn't want to ever shy away from that, even if they're about to take his head off. He doesn't want to ever allow the threats of those around him to keep him from speaking this message. And so that's the rescue that he's talking about. That's the strengthening that's here. We see this in Acts 20. Paul meets with the Ephesian elders, the same elders of the church that Timothy is teaching at right now, probably still people that are circulating in the church, and Paul says to them, before departing, I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. He says, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He's like, that's my life. My course in my ministry being complete before Jesus. The purpose of testifying to the gospel of grace was everything to Paul. And therefore, the Lord's rescue of him wasn't that he was thinking God was gonna get him out of dying. It was that he was going to be able to endure to the very last breath, preaching Christ. This is what Christ bringing him safely into his kingdom was. It's the very same kingdom that we saw Jesus talking about in Matthew 13. Jesus said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's the same kingdom Paul's talking about. My father's kingdom. The whole point of this part of the letter is this reality, that in the middle of times of difficulty, when we are surrounded by chaos, theological chaos, chaos in the culture, when we are surrounded by false doctrines and false teachers, when the world feels upside down to us and is becoming more twisted and more poisoned towards Christianity and the gospel. And you and I seem to be sinking deeper and deeper into the waters of marginalization and potentially affliction and persecution and things that other parts of this world are experiencing firsthand. Paul is saying, I'm looking into that situation knowing it, having experienced it, don't be ashamed is what he's saying. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The Lord will rescue you and he will help you in that moment to endure the suffering. He will strengthen you when you need to be strengthened. Not to circumnavigate the suffering, but to walk through it, trusting in him. In every step of the way, we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more like the one who's conforming us into his image. No suffering in the Christian life is meaningless. No suffering in the Christian life is purposeless. What these texts tell us about suffering is that God has a purpose in and through it. And it is the very means by which he will safely bring us into the kingdom where we will shine like the sun basking in the glory of our Father in heaven. This is why we can walk through times of difficulty. This is why we can walk through suffering because he promises to be with us in the middle of the suffering and then uses the very suffering we experience for our eternal good and our eternal glory. That's what's going on when we are shedding tears over something that is horrible that's happened to us. If we do it faithfully trusting in Christ, we are being conformed into that image. We need to be gripped by the truth that Christ will stand with us in those moments. In the fires of affliction, he will be with us and he will uphold us when everything else is falling apart. I and mean, this is the one who saved you. If you're a Christian right now, this is the one who saved you. This is Jesus. He will be with you. And therefore, Paul is telling us never be ashamed of him. Know the one you've believed. He will be with you in these moments. He is worth fighting for, he is worth dying for, because he is infinitely worthy in every conceivable way. And we come to see him as that treasure when we're looking at the cross, when we're looking at the gospel, when we press our souls into the reality of what he did on that tree to redeem us. How a perfect and holy son of God suffered an immeasurable undoing that we cannot even, we don't even have language for to describe what happened to him on the cross so that we could be redeemed. When we embrace that, we begin to see his worth and his glory and his beauty The very message we are meant to proclaim is the very means by which we become convinced of his immeasurable value. And so I just want to tell you that if you've truly believed in Christ, if you truly do trust him, you are one of the good seeds that he's planted in his garden, in his field. You are grain that he will gather into his barn on the final day. But the path of holiness will not be easy because we will be surrounded by weeds. It will be hard. It will be difficult. It will be fraught with suffering because all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. But I want you to know that he promises to stand by you and not let you go, but strengthen you until he brings you safely into the kingdom of his Father where you will shine like the sun at noonday. I want to read to you before I pray a, a poem that for me captured the sentiment of this text perfectly. It's a poem by Martha Skell Nicholson called The Thorn, which is a reference to 2 Corinthians 12, if you're familiar with Paul's Thorn of the Flesh. This is what she writes. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift, which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face this is what Paul's telling us happens in the middle of suffering. Let's pray. Father God, no one wants to experience suffering in this world. No one wants to experience pain in this world. But as a child of God, we all desire to look like Jesus. We want to be godly, We want to be conformed into the image of the Son. And I want you to give us the courage to say, after that statement, no matter what, no matter what, we want to look like Jesus. No matter what it costs us, no matter how hard it is, we desire to live a godly life. And so I, I plead with you, Father God, that you would work in my heart and in my friends' hearts today. A, a longing and a zeal for that godly life that we make efforts to live in that way but we, we want to look like Jesus and we want to look like Jesus no matter what help us to be faithful to the gospel help us not to be ashamed of Christ and help us to see as we look at the cross as we even sing over the next few minutes that Jesus really is as worthy as the Bible says he is. He's really as beautiful and as glorious as the scriptures tell us and help us be gripped by that reality so that no matter what happens in our life, whether it's cancer or whether it's cancel culture, whether it's uh, being fired from our job or a car accident that we have no words to explain, that we would walk through the fire of suffering, clinging to Jesus, know that he, knowing that he strengthens us in the middle of it, and he will never, ever let us go. And one day, he will bring us into the kingdom of his Father, where we will shine like the sun in his Father's glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen.